Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder and editor, Ed Condon. Ed, it is good to see you. Uh, it is nice to see you too, J.D. How are you doing? I'm doing very, uh, I'm doing very well, but enough about me. How are you doing? I'm feeling all right. I'm glad to be at home. I, uh, as you know, um, I spent a considerable period of this week in the departure lounge of Detroit Airport. And, um, you know, as spending time in any airport is, it was instructive in the human condition. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm not a willing student of the human condition. I prefer to avoid it if I can. So I'm, I'm grateful to be back at home. Did you know um, there is such a thing called shapewear? Uh, shapewear, I presume, is... Uh, I did not know that there was such a thing called shapewear, but I think I probably know about the existence of shapewear. I presume shapewear is something like Spanx or other... Yes. Um, lycra, Lycra-constructed clothing that can shape and conform the body, not unlike the corsets of old. Exactly. This is basically chain mail manufactured out of spandex, as near as I can tell. And uh... Now, did you learn this at the airport? Yes, and I tell you for why. Uh, there was a, an entire store... Uh, run by, you, you've mentioned the brand name, which I didn't recognize, called Spanx. And they have an entire store in the Detroit airport. And so I, I passed by this and I said, what is that? And I asked this question of the internet and it told me and I was uh, surprised. And I was further surprised in a reflection that there was an entire store dedicated to this. And I was further surprised that there was an entire store for this in the airport. Well, I'll tell you why that probably is, is that you know, uh, you, you shouldn't be surprised. In fact, I suspect if you asked your wife, she might be familiar with this kind of thing. Um, many people are. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing has been, in one form or another, a part of um, human dressing customs for, I don't know, probably probably three, four hundred, five hundred years. I don't know how long, of course, it's been around. Um, we, we, uh, we, I tell you, man, these men and their Body standards, I guess. I don't know, but there are, this but, is not an uncommon thing, I don't but think. But who arrives at the airport and is like, well, I got 20 minutes before my flight, so... Well, I mean, you won't have 20 minutes before your flight if you're flying Delta. You'll have negative 15 minutes to make well, a I connection. Well, I tell you what but... it might be. It's like, oh, I came into town for a wedding, and I forgot this garment that I needed to wear underneath this wedding outfit. Or I have a business meeting, and I forgot this garment that I would wear underneath my business suit. And, uh, and so I think airport stores typically sell kind of... Items of convenience for travelers who might have forgotten things. In addition, obviously, to neck pillows and $4 bottles of water. It, it, it took me by surprise. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I was... I love, I love the game called Ed Discovers the Modern World. It's really one of my favorites. But you and I did take... I mean, the point is that you spent a lot of time in departure lounges because you and I did take... Both took trips this week. We, I suppose we, we took a trip in that we both took a trip to the same location and had a meeting and then we departed and went went in our in our separate ways but you had a very difficult time because um you missed a connecting flight on the way um to our location and uh and then on the way home you had a connection and the connection was just delayed by hours and hours and hours and hours and hours no i i missed the connection on the way home as well because oh okay i landed at uh three o'clock and boarding for my next flight began at 301 and there was a 20 minute boarding window and they conveniently located the other flight 25 minutes away from where i landed because again thank you delta <laughs> that is so frustrating what happened on your trip out to our location is that you and i flew from our respective cities i live in colorado and flew out of denver international airport and you flew out of i don't know reagan national airport or bwi or something and we both flew into an airport where we would connect on the same connecting flight to a smaller city where we had a meeting. And uh, and so we were supposed to be on the same connecting flight. And you texted me as the flight was boarding to say that your flight, you know, into that airport had just landed and um, you were going to run through the airport. And I talked to the gate agent and I said, look, my colleague is coming and, you know, he's he's now running through the airport and could you hold the door? And the gate agent was very nice. And she said, yeah, you know, yeah, I'll do everything I can for him. And, um, you know, I I understand, and I said, well, the reason why his plane is delayed in the first place is because of mechanical error on his first, you know, mechanical problem on his first plane kept him from taking off, and so you know, I'd really appreciate it. It would kind of ruin his whole day. And could you, you know, could you just help us out? And the gate agent said, yeah, 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 absolutely. And then 
when it came time to to board the plane and you were keeping me updated and you were just like uh, down a long hallway basically the gate agent told me to board the plane and I said well my colleague and she said I understand I understand don't worry and I got on the plane and then she closed the door and you got there like 30 seconds after that uh, I did and I was in a state of some disarray when I arrived because I I, I had been bolting on, through an airport yes and I frown on moving quickly um I <laughs> I, I have often said, in fact, when people have asked me if I do things like running or jogging, I say, no, I reserve that sort of activity for if I'm looking to miss a plane or a train. And in this case, I was looking to miss a plane. So I, I did run. Um, I ran for what was probably closer to a half mile than a quarter mile to get there. And having been informed by the gate agent that I would not be boarding the plane, I then collapsed into a wheezing puddle <laughs> of shin splints and sweat. And well, for it, my comfortable position on the plane, oh, it was it was, it was frustrating, although it was not as bad as all that. Um, but, you know, this is the first time that I have flown in a very long time. I mean, this is I, – I flew one time in, in gosh, I want to say early November and uh, and then this. And before November, I hadn't flown, you know, since February or early March or whatever it was, probably February. And so I, I thought, you know, the airport was practically empty and – um, I had, you know, getting through security took me about one minute and, um, I thought that probably the airlines might be a little bit more accommodating to things like people being late because of their own mechanical failures because their, their business is in trouble. I mean, they just have fewer and fewer and fewer customers, but that did not prove to be the case. And I was really, I was surprised and discouraged by that because I wanted to think that at a time like this, we could all be a little bit more human to each other. No, you will never be reported human consideration by employees of airlines well i don't know i mean i've been trying to you know me i've been trying to imagine that the gate agent it has to report precisely what time she closed the door or the door tracks what time the gate agent closes the door and if she doesn't close it on time then she gets in trouble i've been trying to afford every benefit of the doubt that i can but the reason I'm, i'm i'm frustrated with myself ed because when she told me it was time for me to board and you were basically down a very long hallway i realized i should have fumbled with my phone and pretended that i didn't know how to access my boarding pass or something i should have tried to buy you more time and i didn't and and for that i owe you an apology oh i don't blame you um i well i don't blame myself either but it's performative apology Fair enough. I, I, <laughs> I appreciate your continuous attempts to find the good in people who are clearly not good. Um, <laughs> in this case, she announced that I had missed the flight, which I was staring at out of the window, still attached to the jetway. Uh, I'd missed it by 45 seconds. And, um, well, she was smug, JD. She was smug about it. And then, you know what's crazy, Ed, is we didn't push off from the from the gate, from the jetway, for like 10 more minutes because a bunch of planes had a de-ice. So I just sat there for like... 10 minutes while you sat on the other side and then ultimately just to kind of wrap this story up for our listeners you had to what rent a car and drive like nearly three hours to meet me at the place where we were going in order to have our meeting yes so that was a real to-do yes thank you and Delta. then on your way home what happened on your way home as i understand it is that you again had a mechanical problem again missed your connection and ended up spending Hours and hours and hours and hours in the airport of Detroit, Michigan. Is that right? That is exactly right. And I, I tell you what, normally I would not have felt this uh, felt this delay as acutely. Um, but one thing I discovered is previously, if you get stranded in an airport um, or you've got a series of flights that you're getting or anything like that, I used to treat these as little mini vacations. I would enjoy uh-huh. it. It was like being on holiday for me because, you know, you... You can't be expected to work. The, you know, when you're on, when you're in the air, you can't take phone calls and things like that. Um, and you know, uh, ordinarily, in if if I found myself in an airport for eight hours, I would have said, "Well, I've got eight hours. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to, you know, do something for me. I'm just going to, you know, make use of a this little, time. A little me time. Huh? A little me time. But no, now we're self-employed and running, <laughs> running our own website, our stroke, own project, yeah, our own project, our own website, stroke." newsletter um i couldn't do that i had to i sit there and was consumed with there were things i needed to do i needed to i needed to figure things out i needed to call people i needed to write things and so i couldn't even enjoy that jd i I guess that's what i'm saying i for one if you don't mind my saying so i'm glad that you kept working and uh and i suspect that our readers are too uh uh, sure i hope so i hope so i'm doing it all for them i'm doing it for you people (laughs) 
I want you I, to know. I'm I'm doing it for the kingdom, but I'm glad if you all achieve a, a crew benefit. Boom. Bested. Yeah, fine. <laughs> now I I will say this. Um that <laughs> you and I when we when we talked about launching the pillar and when we decided we would launch the pillar, one of the things we said is that you and I both have a tendency to work a lot and that we would uh, hold ourselves accountable to working, you know, 40 or 45 hours a week. And we would sort of, we would call each other on to reasonable uh, work schedules. And here we are almost a month into this project. And what we're doing instead, Ed, is like challenging each other to work more. Like it'll be like, you know, 10 o'clock at night and I'll be like, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to just do one more thing. You call it a day if you need to, but I'm just going to get one more thing done. And then of course you'll have to sort of reciprocate with the same. So we <laughs> This is not that. It's not good. Although I have to not, note, you're at a structural advantage because you're two hours behind me. So I am two hours behind you, but I also know that when it's, I also know that you're getting started two hours ahead of me, and so I push myself increasingly in the morning. Like, well, you know, like I'll be making a cup of coffee and then thinking, like, well, Ed's probably been at his desk for ten minutes. I can't let him win. I better just bolt this coffee. You know, I, and, I have noticed and, that you've taken to sending me messages at what is for sure seven AM your time. Just and to Kate'll make say the like, point. Well, Kate'll say like, Do you want to just sit and have a cup of coffee before you start work? And I'll say like Yes, and I do. I love to sit and have a cup of coffee with my wife before I start work. But all the time I'm thinking, Ed is watching the clock and Ed is gonna win. And so we do. We need to call each other on better to this, lest lest we lest we uh, work ourselves into into some sort of sad, lonely oblivion. Okay. Well, let's. It's time for us to talk about the news. And uh, yes, one please. of the news is that we. Yeah. One of the news is that we are going to talk about um, this week is um, kind of the resolution of a case of allegations against a bishop, a retired bishop in the United States, um, which might sound familiar to those of you who have been paying attention to the life of the church for the last few years, because the, probably the largest or defining overarching structural story of the progress of the church of the last few years or the activity of the church of the last few years is an allegation of serial abuse on the part of a retired U.S. bishop. But this is not a story about McCarrick. This is instead a story about uh, the emeritus bishop of the Diocese of Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is one of the smallest dioceses in the country by Catholic population, one of the largest dioceses of the country by territory, but smallest diocese of the country by Catholic population. And um, the uh, allegations that kind of um, became widely known um, in 2018 are that uh, Bishop Joseph Hart, the emeritus bishop of Cheyenne, Wyoming, serially sexually abused teenagers in the 1970s while he was a priest in the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, Missouri, and also during his ministry as a bishop in Wyoming. There had been periods after uh, Bishop Hart's, you know, after Bishop Hart retired as a bishop when um, when these allegations just kind of were, there were allegations that were made and then um, reported, apparently, you know, but, but they didn't really come, the full scope of the allegations didn't really come into the fore um, until the past two years. And the allegations are, you know, allegations of serial uh, sexual abuse uh, of minors, that Bishop Hart would be alone with um, mostly teenage boys, uh, take them camping, have them in his house. There's one allegation that he um, sexually abused a, a teenage girl, but most of the allegations are abuse of teenage boys, that he would take them camping or have them in his house or be alone with them in other contexts and sexually abuse them uh, when they were alone. And uh, and so... Um, in 2018, the the um, both the diocese of Cheyenne and the Cheyenne police began to look very seriously at allegations that were just then coming to the fore and allegations that had been made in the past about Bishop Hart and um, the Cheyenne police recommended, in fact, that charges be filed against uh, Bishop Hart, but they weren't. the The prosecutor declined um, to 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 file charges, criminal charges against him. But the diocese hired an investigator to look into these allegations of, of um, serial sexual abuse on the part of Bishop Hart, and uh, and then the results of that investigation were brought before the Diocesan Review Board, which is a group of uh, lay people who are charged with sort of advising and assisting the bishop in cases in, regarding sexual abuse of minors. And um, the review board concluded that the that the allegations had what's called a semblance of truth, which is a the sort of first bar standard of proof in the church's canonical investigative process and basically means that the allegations are not manifestly false or frivolous. Now, the diocese has said that, in fact, the allegations were found to be credible, which is um, a vague and often undefined term in canon law, 
Um, and we don't know exactly what the diocese means by that, but we do know that the cases were sent on to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith uh, in Rome, which is competent to hear these cases. And Bishop Hart was directed um, not to publicly celebrate uh, any liturgies and or not to have any contact with minors or seminarians or vulnerable adults. And a penal process in the life of the you know in the church began looking into these allegations. Yep. And um, so I have a couple of things that I find interesting about this case. Okay, should we just give the conclusion of it and then give those? Oh, okay. Yeah, so the conclusion was that they um, they found several of the accusations to be not proven. Right, so, so, so yeah, so he had all these charges, and some of the charges were found to be not proven. And not proven is a particular standard in canon law. Yes, I mean, in, in canon law, there are really only uh, three verdicts you can get. There's the, ge- the general um, binary that a, a canonical tribunal will arrive at is constat or non-constat, that is proven or not proven. Right. Um, and that's the baseline. So it's, you know, one should not, um, uh, one should not interpret a non-constat as, as sort of, you know, well, you, you couldn't quite make it stick. It's the equivalent, in, you know, in what we recognize in civil law. Not guilty. Guilty or not guilty. Um, right. You know, that the charges haven't been proven because there is, of course, the presumption of innocence. Uh, there is a, there is a third level, um, which is very rarely used, but it can be, which is if the defense basically slam dunks the thing, the, the tribunal can, in fact, find um, a, a verdict of vindicated, basically, which is not only have uh, the charges not been proven, but the reverse has been proven that he has been uh, factually exonerated, exonerated, basically. Um, and some of some of the allegations against Bishop Hart were found to have to, to reach that standard of exoneration. Correct. And some reach that standard of unable to be non-concept, that is to be unable to be either exonerated nor proven guilty. Well, I, again, I, I push back slightly on that language because I don't like I, I don't like portraying a verdict of non-constat as a sort of via media between um, guilty and innocent. That that's not what it is. It's not that they, it's not that they failed to reach a decision. They reached a decision, and the decision was this has not been proven. Fair, okay. Which you know, I just I, I'm not speaking to the the facts or the decision in Bishop Hart's case. I'm just saying as a general premise, yeah. I I think it's important to underline that there's nothing um, suspicious or uh, you know less uh, less of less value to someone seeking to clear their name in a canonical tribunal um, about a non-constat. Right. But you know, you, it's very unusual for there to be a vindication. A vindication. Um, it's a, and, it's a fit, yeah yeah and there was another was it one or two instances that they declined two, to try there were two instances that they declined to try and the reason is because the alleged victims um, were 16 and 17 at the time of the alleged abuse and um, I, I wrote about this earlier in the week and I said that they were not considered minors uh, in canon law at the time of the alleged abuse they were 16 and 17 but that isn't technically correct and some of our canonic can, canonist readers um, corrected me to say um, in fact, 16 and 17 year olds were considered technically minors in canon law at the time but at the same time um it was a canonical crime um only to have only to have sexual contact with a person who was below 16 in, in canon law at that time so it's a distinction perhaps without a difference for our purposes but a bunch of canonists jumped on me about it so i felt like i should say in fact i did not ex- i did not say that correctly it was not it was not a crime in canon law at that time to have for to have sexual contact with a person who was 16 or above which i think reflected in fairness because that sounds very jarring to us which i think reflected the age of consent in many jurisdictions around the world and i think still reflects the age of consent in some u.s jurisdictions insofar as i'm aware yeah i i, yeah. I think that's right um right. and i for one was really pleased that the canonist uh readers and friends jumped up and down on you about this uh, now, that's nice. funny that you were pleased about that because I think you read my newsletter before I published it and you didn't jump up and down about it. Well, what I was going to say was I, I was pleased that they jumped up and down on you, not because I like to see you get jumped up and down on, but because it's nice to know that they're reading. It is. It's very nice to know that they're reading. It is. It's very nice to know that they're reading and, and I'm very grateful for that. So that was very good. Um, there was one other um, allegation, though, which is very interesting and very curious um, and probably concerning. Um, the Diocese of Cheyenne says that one allegation that was sent to the Vatican, to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, one allegation of abuse of a minor was seemingly not considered at all, and no reason has been given for that. So, you know, in, he was found to be—he was not found guilty of any canonical crimes in the cases that were heard. Some cases were not heard because of this age issue, and one case seems not simply not to have been heard, which is a very odd kind of resolution. It is a very odd resolution, and we don't we don't know why. I mean, you know, I've, I've been trying to think of you know what would lead to this, and I suppose it could be, uh, you know, if if the alleged victim made it very clear they didn't want 
uh, a prosecution, I suppose. That's one possible theory, although there's no legal requirement to honor the wishes of a victim in that in that way. The CDF is certainly competent to try the case regardless. Uh, but yeah, it's very weird. And it, what this points to for me is something that I've been, and I know you have as well, um, banging on about for a number of years. Uh, in fact, even prior to the McCarrick case, which is there is just insufficient transparency in the way these cases are handled, both for right. bishops, most especially for bishops, because those are the ones that tend to get most of the attention, but also uh, for, for clergy trials in general. And, and by this, I want to be clear that when I say transparency, I don't mean that you know the full acts of the case should be laid open to the public. I'm not suggesting for a minute that victims should be identified or their personal testimony or account sort of laid out for you know general media consumption or anything like that. Certainly not, of course not. But what the church does in other um, for in other branches of law, most especially in notably marriage law, is that the competent tribunals in Rome will publish annually specimen cases that they feel right. articulate certain points of law and they will obscure the personal details and names and everything um, and locations in some cases so that you can't you know identify who the case is dealing with but absent this kind of regular publication from the cdf you know many canonists i know who don't have a lot of experience in handling um, abuse trials either as prosecutors or as defense attorneys don't know how to proceed you know, the bare bones of the of the procedural law is laid out well enough in the code and in Sacramentorum Sanctitatis Tutela, which is the, the modu proprio uh, that sort of provides the procedural law for handling these cases. But, you know, in terms of uh, how you how you interpret and apply the law in your injury section, how you um, apply the law to the facts, how you structure your argument, um, you know, what sort of standards of proof are and how they're to be evaluated by the judges – all of this stuff, if you don't have a background in handling these cases and you don't have sort of, you know, your own um, case backlog to to lean on and learn from, you know, it's just inaccessible to people. And I, I think this is a this is I would argue this is fundamentally detracting from the right to a defense. I did a kind of an advocate's workshop uh, when I was in canonical practice. I did a kind of advocate's workshop that was um, co-sponsored in part by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that taught a lot of those things, and it was extremely helpful. But the challenge um, for canonists is that um, jurisprudence changes, tribunal practices change, the, the practices of the CDF changes, and you know, unless you're getting regular updates, even if you do some training that gives you a little bit more specialized knowledge, you know, ke- keeping up is hard. I would go further, Ed, on the call for transparency than you're going, though, because I think it is important for canonists to have the kind of uh, the kind of publications that you know the kind of transparency that we get from the Roman Rota, the sort of Vatican Tribunal on Marriage Cases, um, with regard to penal cases. But I think that the the greater need for um, more clarity about the various decisions of, um, of of the CDF and judges in these cases is um, to gain trust in a system that right now is entirely lacking credi- credibility, we, or mostly lacking credibility, which is to say the church's system for handling cases of abuse or misconduct or negligence in the case of, uh, the case of bishops, which took a gigantic blow with McCarrick and, and you know, is still struggling. Um, and not only for canonists to have sort of technical information, which is important, but for everyone to better understand how this system of justice is operating. Uh, there are questions that, that we we should wonder, everyone should wonder, why was one allegation just not considered? And how can we know that justice was done if we don't know why this one allegation was not considered? Um, I have other questions as well. This, uh, The case of this bishop who is accused of serial sexual misconduct um, was considered uh, not in a trial, um, but in a different kind of canonical process called an administrative penal process. And usually you only have an administrative penal process. In fact, I think the law says this. You have an administrative penal process when the facts are especially clear. And uh, and um, I am surprised that in a case involving a bishop, serial sexual abuse, serial allegations of sexual abuse, um, and uh, you know, and and apparently some complex cases, that a trial would not be the mechanism of adjudication. And uh, and I think we should be able to ask that. I think we should be able to get some insight on that. Hold on for one second. My son has just brought me an apple. Thanks, Davey. Um, so if I seemed a little distracted, it was the apple. There you, are. Uh, you know, I think we should be able to ask, 
why, you know, why did we have an administrative penal process? Why was a bishop who has a licentiate in canon law, but not a doctorate in canon law, uh, who is not a specialist in the penal law of the church, why was he the one charged, a bishop who I think well of at a, on a sort of personal and pastoral level, but not um, an, an expert in this area of the law, charged with being the one who oversaw that administrative penal process? Those are questions that I think all of us should be able to ask that are not clear, and that's the kind of transparency that I think helps to restore trust in a system that many people are still skeptical about. I totally agree. I There are, you know, as you say, there are lots of questions about this that are unanswered. There are lots of questions about the McCarrick um, penal process. Again, not a trial, uh, an administrative penal process, and, you know, what charges were actually evaluated against him on what and how many charges was he found guilty, all of these things. We have very few of the details, and justice in secret is no justice at all. You know, you can't safeguard the rights of the accused. You can't safeguard the rights of victims. You can't say you can't safeguard the general principle of justice in the society of the church if people don't know what's going on, and especially if it's a system that's already widely perceived to be broken and, and not when, working. Yeah, and I think that's it. And when I say you know many people don't have trust in, in the system, I, I'm not. I, I want to be careful because I don't want to seem to be saying that two years out from McCarrick because you and I are canonists and we talk a lot about these things and I want people to be paying attention to our work. I I I've I realized that for many people, you know, many people are not still deeply sort of invested in the church's structural reforms with regard to penal law post McCarrick, but. Many people instead, I think, had a bad experience of what happened with McCarrick and you know, practicing Catholics that I talked to, priests that I talked to, had, had a bad experience with kind of the fallout from McCarrick and just sort of thought, that, just sort of lost trust that the, that the church would handle these kinds of things well. And, you know, even if they're not sort of in the weeds about that, it's discouraging to me to see that. And I would wish to see more efforts to sort of restore trust, even when most of that is probably expressed as sort of disaffectation rather than, you know, kind of deep in the weed skepticism of the type that we're doing right now. Right. But uh, even at the level of um, a basic awareness of what's going on in the church in these matters, even just a basic awareness of what's going on in the church in these matters in the United States points to a system which there is no uniformity in. That it's right. it's very case by case. It's very scattershot. I mean, we, we wrote at the Pillar a couple of weeks ago about the case of Father Michael Flieger. Is that how you pronounce his Flager? Flager. Yeah, Flager. Flager uh, in Chicago, who's had now two accusations of historical sexual abuse. He was immediately removed from ministry in his parish um, by Cardinal Supich. And he's, you know, very much protesting his innocence and all of this. But he's been he's been pulled uh, from ministry while an investigation takes place, presumably looking towards either some sort of administrative process or a trial. We don't know yet. Um, and that's in no way atypical. In, in many senses, that is sort of what's become by the book uh, for situations of accusations against priests in the United States. But with bishops, we're all over the map. Um, you know, some bishops are only investigated after they've retired. Some bishops uh, are investigated and step back while they're um, under investigation and are then exonerated and returned to ministry. And, you know, if, if that's the right decision, then, you know, thanks be to God that they were able to do so. And that's, that's great. Um, other bishops remain in ministry and in charge of their diocese throughout the investigation as it takes place, even if it goes for years. And, you know, I'm not saying that in any one of these cases, there was a, you know, that one decision was right and another one would have been wrong. But what I'm saying is there's clearly no universal standard of justice at play for clerics in the United States on how to handle these accusations, particularly historic accusations. And, you know, if they're, and, and, and you know, to to offer an olive branch to any canonists who might be listening, I, I would say, I, I'm not necessarily saying there should be a, a uniform standard which everyone has to be held. Different cases might argue for different ways of handling it. But there's no transparency in how those decisions are made. And and I would say, you know, I, I think the the problem with that is this, it obscures the goodness. So I think it's I mean, I think it is a big, big, big step. It should not be disputed that it is a big, big step for the church's sort of reform of, of justice and accountability on these things, that Bishop Hart had a day in court. I, I, I really do. Uh, we can look at the McCarrick report and see for how long allegations of abuse or misconduct by bishops were not afforded a day in court. Um, I, I think it's a big step. I think it's a, good, a positive step that, you know, the Holy See has kind of indicated that even after he's gotten these, um, these resolutions which don't, um, which don't convict him of a delict, he remains in extremely limited ministry. I think that's a good thing, which says the Holy See recognizes the seriousness of the problem and does not wish to sort of 
treat it or be seen to be treating it as flippant. I think that's good. I think there are a lot of good things happening. I think Vos Estes Lex Mundi, the, the reforms of Pope Francis on these issues, are good and important reforms that are canonically good, even if they could be tweaked a little bit. Um, I, what I don't want to see is all of that. I, I want the church, I want the bishops of the United States and, and the Holy Father and the church to be able to say, look at all these things that we have done that are really, really good and effectively demonstrate to people that the church takes this stuff as seriously as I think she has been taking in the past few years. But um, that lack of transparency can obscure th- that opportunity. You know what else there's a clear lack of? What? Law. How <laughs> so? Well, okay, so what happened to Bishop Hart? I don't want to do the Socratic thing because I don't know what answer you're looking for. Just tell me this. Okay, so he wasn't convicted of any of these things, but nevertheless, he was given a formal canonical admonishment. Right. He was basically said, we don't know what it was. Which is a possibility that exists in the law that a person can be rebuked even if they're not allowed to be. But my point is he was rebuked by the Vatican for something that he did. We don't know what. Imprudent behavior being alone with minors and conduct on becoming a priest. Right. But, you know, mm-hmm. quite what that involves. I mean, that that's a very, sure. very broad heading. You mm-hmm. know, there's yeah. there's yeah. everything that, that could encompass behavior that's everything from the trivial to the incredibly serious. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but they, there was enough there that they issued this formal rebuke. He's still not allowed to celebrate mass publicly or have any kind of public ministry, as I've understood right. it. So he's done something serious enough that Rome is basically saying, you are, to all intents and purposes, forever suspended from ministry. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, but they couldn't. They, whatever he did that was worthy of that treatment was clearly not a crime. Right, and that's a problem. That is a huge, gaping hole in the church's penal yeah. law that needs to be addressed. Which mm-hmm. you know, if a if a bishop of the church can, over a period of years, commit behaviors that Rome, when it takes the time to investigate, it looks and says, "This is so serious, you cannot be allowed out in public." But we've got nothing that we can try or convict you on then we need more law. That's we a good just point. Do. That's a, yeah, that's a very good point. And it's something that you and I have said before, which is that we need more law at the diocesan level for um, uh, patterns or um, incidences of misconduct that are not currently covered by the universal law of the church. Um, so we, we need that. But I, I think we also probably need it at the universal level so that it pertains not only to those who are subject to diocesan law, but pertains to those who make diocesan law, namely bishops as well. So I think you're right. It does point to a lacuna in the law. Yeah, and I mean, I, we've we've talked about this uh, before in other times and other places that, you know, the universal law of the church is currently constituted on penal law was never intended to be universal, but it was very self-consciously stripped back during the code revision process following the council. And the idea was to create space for bishops to pass their own penal laws that would be, you know, more attuned to the needs of time and place in their own diocese so that you didn't try and find a constant one-size-fits-all policy for a church that is truly global. And, you know, I, I understand the thinking behind that. But the bottom line is we're, you know, we're nearly 40 years into the 1983 code now, and it simply isn't working uh, in, in terms of penal law because, you know, first of all, in the in the areas of the world and the church where they're more than equipped to have drafted their own penal law and enforce it, and have the the resources, both human and um, and material, to do so. They have not. They simply haven't in the United States and Europe. And you know we've we've seen this. This is why we have an abuse scandal. Mm-hmm. And then there are a whole other swathes of the world where Vosestes is, I fear, going to prove to be something of a dead letter because there's just nowhere like the resources. It's, it's to aspirational. Apply them. There's not the infrastructure to apply it, which yeah. is what we saw. Actually, it's it's interesting. It's 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 not unlike what we saw with. Um, so the the sort of the sort of guiding canonical, the practical guiding canonical text on um, the process for marriage cases in tribunals is Dignitas Canubii, which is an instruction that sort of clarifies the law on, uh, on how to proceed in, in marriage cases in a tribunal. Um, and Dignitas Canubii, I think, you know, when it, when it was promulgated um, in the United States, required a, a number of tribunals, most tribunals, to significantly revise their processes. But it's Dignitas Canubi is aspirational at best in much of the world because many parts of the world don't have functional tribunals to begin with. So to sort of bring their tribunals in line with Dignitas Canubi is a kind of silly thing to even talk about. Right. I think maybe that's true with regard to Vosestes too. Many parts of the world don't have, you know, I've realized this. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a story right now about, uh, about a, some situations in Nigeria. And um, as I talk with um, 
some big dioceses in Nigeria, I realized, oh, they don't have sort of the baseline kind of safe environment protections that we have built in the United States to help ensure that the church is, generally speaking, addressing these issues. So there's a much further way to go. Now, one advantage of the situation of those places is that they can learn from those best practices of places like the United States that have been doing those kinds of things for a while and, you know, sometimes in fits and starts and sometimes with failure, so that when they implement something, it may be sort of better poised to work. But as you say, I'm always looking for the best in people, so maybe maybe that's what I'm doing. Well, I, I and I hope you're right. <laughs> I, I hope you're right. But I, I guess the point that I keep coming back to is you can't have an asymmetry of law. It, it can't be a crime to do something that is obviously wrong and malicious and problematic and sinful to a child in one country and not in another under the law of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's ludicrous. Right. I concur. Okay, we are going to talk about the law more in the next episode because we are going to uh, move on. We made a list of three things, and I suspect we're going to talk about two of them. So we, uh, we're going to triage a little bit. But the next thing that we're going to talk about, Ed, is, um, is a statement, a correction, um, a, a, a public statement issued uh, last week by the Archbishop of San Francisco, Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, um, to uh, a member of his church, his subject, if you prefer that language, um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a Catholic of the Archdiocese of San Francisco. And uh, this statement of Archbishop Cordelioni was fundamentally a correction. Uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, had <laughs> had uh, made comments in which she said that, uh, in, a, in a podcast actually, Speaker Pelosi had made comments in which she said that Pro-life voters are, quote, willing to sell the whole democracy down the river on the one issue, and she was referring to abortion. And uh, and she said, you know, that people who voted, who are sort of single-issue voters uh, on the issue of abortion, quote, give me grief as a Catholic. And uh, the correction issued by Archbishop Cordelioni was basically a statement in which he said that uh, abortion is, as the bishops have said, a preeminent priority in the life of the church, but also just spoke to the centrality of um, the dignity of the human person uh, and the right to life in, in the church's moral teaching and um, and uh, the church's kind of clarity on the importance of abortion and the immorality of laws that protect or allow or fund or otherwise um, make possible um, uh, abortion. And, and, and it was he, pretty... It was pointedly about what Pelosi said. That it, oh, yes. This, it was you a know, very often you get... strong, very clear, unambiguous rebuke, which is unusual for a bishop because oftentimes a politician will say something and then, and then the relevant bishop will sort of opine on the issue without saying, without exactly. being clear, I am talking about this person. But He's, that was he not said, the case here. Speaker Pelosi's comments run contrary to 2,000 years of unbroken moral right. teaching of the church of the highest right. order. Right. And this is, I, I think this is what they, what they, what they call a teaching moment. I think that's right. I think I think I, that's right. But I found it very, very interesting that uh, he he did this because I mean, obviously, this comes hot on the heels of the the all US the other bishops stuff. Conference. Yeah, yeah, all the other stuff. The U.S. Bishops Conference um, issuing its letter to Joe Biden um, and his incoming administration on on the preeminence of of abortion and Joe Biden's manifest uh, intention to be probably the most pro-abortion president in history. I noticed today he he did finally repeal the Mexico City policy. Which he had been in saying that he would do, which yeah, yeah, which he had been saying that he would do. So America is uh, now yeah. once again funding abortions abroad. So there's another na- a stain on our national character. Which uh, you know, to be clear, Archbishop Corleone in his uh, in his correction of Nancy Pelosi said that America has blood on its hands for the. So I think the figure is somewhere around eight hundred and fifty thousand, roughly, abortions a year that mm-hmm. are performed in the United States. So um, no, that was interesting. What I what I found uh, interesting as a sort of thought experiment about this whole thing, though, was you know we've talked before about um, how uh, how bishops can and in some cases have and in some places have pointedly not uh, invoked Canon nine fifteen with regard to Catholic politicians who uh, take very public stances in favor of abortion and use their elected office to advance. Um, broadening access to abortion and funding for abortion and things like that. And there is obviously a process to invoking Canon 915. You can't just sort of wake up one morning if you're a bishop and say, no, nope, I've had enough. Here we go. And, you know, say that the, the politician in question is in, a, is in a state of manifest and obstinate grave sin and therefore is ineligible to receive Holy Communion. That, you know, there is there is a process. 
Um, and, you know, the process is, you know, according to the law, you know, to be obstinate, you have to have, you know, you have to, you have to obstinately persevere in the face of corrections. Um, and, and this would appear to me to, whether consciously or unconsciously, I have no idea um, what Archbishop Cordelione, uh meant in doing this other than perhaps just the obvious of setting the record straight and hopefully pricking the conscience of Speaker Pelosi. Um, but he does seem to have issued a kind of correction. And there was, of course, the 2004, was it? Yeah, memo it was. From, yep. mm-hmm. 2004 yep. memo from the CDF, which was signed uh-huh. by uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, responding to questions from the U.S. bishops on what should we do with uh, Catholic pro-abortion politicians. And the CDF was incredibly clear about <laughs> Catholic politicians who uh, campaign in favor of abortion, vote in favor of abortion, use their political power to advance abortion, are in a state of very grave perseverance. And I would say, you know, what's interesting is that the principles that are laid out in that 2004 instruction, which basically say, yeah, a, a, a Catholic in political life who is cons- who is regularly advocating for, supporting, promoting, and 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 empowering um, uh, political political positions which are which run directly afoul of the Church's moral teaching and doctrine. Um, can be persevering in manifest grave sin, and if they're warned about it and continue, they can be obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin, and therefore the bishop should first encourage them to repent, and if if unsuccessful in encouraging them to repent, should prohibit them from receiving Holy Communion in order to um, ensure that there is not the appearance of tacit consent to their behavior, and also um, in order to more clearly um, and more vociferously call them to conversion and repentance. But the principles that are laid out there um, apply not only to abortion, but to any number of political positions which run contrary to the doctrinal teaching of the church. So someone asked me today, um, could a bishop prohibit um, a a governor who insists upon uh, the immoral application of the death penalty, um, uh, immorally ordering executions or immorally consenting to executions in his state, could a bishop prohibit him from the reception of Holy Communion? And um, it seems to me that the answer is yes, that um, those principles that are outlined in um, in the 2004 memo apply to other uh, other other moral issues. If a, if now you take the, take the issue of torture, if a Catholic in political life was consistently advocating for the use of torture as an intelligence gathering tool, I, I think a bishop would be well within his rights to do the same thing. It gets a little bit trickier because torture is more difficult to f- define than abortion. But if you had a case where it was not difficult to define, I, I think a bishop would certainly be within his rights in the exact same way uh, because of the principles of that memo. No, I would absolutely agree with that. And and, and actually, you know, the, the, the most sort of interesting example of, um, of denying uh, uh, public Catholics uh, reception of Holy Communion came uh, when there were Catholics in the 1960s who were unwilling to... Uh, desegregate their schools, uh, yes. who were sort of insisting on a, po- a racist policy of segregation in schools and were, in fact, denied the reception of Holy Communion uh, because that policy of segregation was adjudged to be contrary to the doctrinal teaching of the Church. Absolutely. I, which is and I, pretty interesting. Yeah, and, and I think, yeah. you know, we, we've talked about this before, and I think it bears repeating that the more consistently right. bishops That's why I speak that. about yeah. these matters, mm-hmm. uh, the more the more seriously they they will need to be taken in yeah, speaking that's exactly so i mean I you know, mm-hmm. that's right none of none of this is to you know to to talk about um you know applying applying and i want to be clear this is not a punishment <clears throat> canon 915 it's a call is, to conversion canon 915 is a call yeah. to conversion and yeah and it's not when you say not a punishment you you're not sort of playing semantics you mean in a formal technical canonical sense there are things called sanctions punishments yes. and then there are disciplinary measures which are entirely yes. different kind of by category and this falls into that second category it does and and more yeah. importantly the primary purpose of invoking canon 915 and and publicly stating that an individual is not in a fit state to receive communion the purpose of that is not to affect their sort of public uh disciplining the primary aspect is to prevent them from hurting themselves because right. if you are obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin and receiving communion you are not only committing another grave sin but you are doing yourself very, very serious spiritual harm that mm-hmm. receiving the Eucharist in a state of grave sin is in, an act of incredible spiritual self-harm and and sin. And anyone, I would think, any pastor with a, a true shepherd's heart for the welfare of 
um, of their flock would want to prevent someone from doing this, not a, not a, as a sort of finger wagging exercise of I'm going to withhold this thing that you want, mm-hmm. but in a I'm trying to stop you from hurting yourself. And anyway, I, I find that um, I find the lack of that thinking or the lack of any reasoning with that. Um, what seems to be clear intention of stopping people from receiving Holy Communion in these circumstances from bishops who have said they will not deny politicians communion more or less under any circumstances. I, I, I wonder what, what is their answer to that? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, for example, Cardinal, uh, Cardinal Gregory here in Washington, who said very publicly and repeatedly that he has no intention of denying Joe Biden communion over his uh, abortion stance. Um, you know, Biden has now, you know, issued a statement reiterating his promise to enshrine the full scope of Roe v. Wade in federal law. He did so on the eve of the anniversary of the decision Roe v. Wade. He has now um, rescinded the Mexico City policy on the eve of the March for Life, albeit virtual one this year. You know, I, I, I would struggle to think of a more pointed series of events that suggests that, no, Joe Biden is not kidding. He's really all in for the abortion stuff. And if you really do believe that abortion is the ending of an innocent human life and that that is gravely immoral, which is what the church teaches um, with its highest level of teaching authority, I would think as a bishop you would have a care for their soul and and want to, you know, want to stop them from doing further self-harm. Um, in the same way, and, and again, this is where I think consistency is so important, because in the same way that I hope that a bishop would have care for a soul for a person who is consistently advocating for uh, advocating for promoting or engaging in kind of the call for um, unjust wars. Right. Um, it, Absolutely. And, and yeah. it seems to me that often when you hear bishops speak about why they don't want to do this, um, and Cardinal Dolan has done this as well, and to my fury and rage, which I have expressed publicly and in writing, um, about uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who I think, and you and I, we aren't going to go down this. I have said no, we're, we're not going to relitigate. We have, we have technically we, different opinions. We have about technically Cuomo, different opinions, but I think substantively that, similar opinions. Yes, but I've said yes. that I think Cardinal Dolan should be excommunicating Andrew Cuomo. Um, again, not because you know serves him right, but again, out of pastoral concern for his soul. And when the bishops like Cardinal Gregory and Cardinal Dolan speak about why they don't want to do this, it usually— Why they re- don't want to engage in any of the disciplinary measures prescribed by the Exactly. It, it, what's absent from that is any kind of pastoral care, uh, and I'm not saying this is absent from their heart, I'm saying this is absent from their responses, um, any kind of uh, sense of pastoral care for the soul of the politician in question, that the, the discussion is always at the level of sort of politics, of, well, I don't want to hand the other side a, a weapon to or a badge of right, honor. Right, exactly, or I think there would be a badge of honor or something like that. Or and, I don't want to shut frankly, off dialogue when we can, you know, yeah. make progress in other areas with the government. It's like, who cares about that? You're, save a soul here. Yeah, and I, I, I hope I, I hear more bishops like Cordelioni. I mean, the purpose of this honestly was the purpose of this conversation was honestly because I thought Cordelioni's um, statement was a good um, was a good sort of first step in in a potential process of sort of governing on these fronts, and I wanted to I wanted to sort of highlight the, the the good step there. So I, I think there are bishops who are increasingly sort of taking those steps and increasingly sort of emboldened and encouraged to do that, but. You know, as we've already seen and talked about last week, and we'll continue to talk about, I also think we're going to see um, ever more um, sharply drawn lines between bishops in the United States about precisely this. And can I, I the last word just to circle okay. back before we finish? You see how I said circle back there? Did you get the joke? Uh, no. Oh, well, you're, you don't live in Washington, so you probably haven't. No, the new press secretary, the new White House press secretary. They, they've been doing supercuts, and basically she answers every question by saying, let me circle back to you on that. I'll circle oh, back to you. And it's, yeah, it's very I don't nice. live anyway. in Washington. Um, anyway, no, what I, what I would like to say before closing is um, just to remind people why we don't have a national policy in this when we do have clear guidance from the CDF. Why is that not just, you know? Well, well uh, we would never have a national policy, actually. So this is what's sort of interesting. I, confound it. This is what's sort sorry, of interesting. Sorry, but is, I, people want to know, J.D., so in 2004, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the... Well, Cardinal Ratzinger, who was prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, sent uh, a letter to McCarrick to answer a question from the U.S. bishops about how they should handle this question of specifically pro-choice politicians, Catholic politicians in political life, and Ratzinger sent a letter back. Now, the person who he sent a letter back was the person who was head of the committee that was charged with working on this, namely one Theodore McCarrick. And as is known, Theodore McCarrick obscured and did not make known to the bishops. Um, he, he inaccurately summarized the content of that report, uh, of that memo, when the bishops were debating this. And the bishops came away saying you know, he, 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 he did not sufficiently explain Ratzinger's sort of um, clear moral guidance on how a bishop ought to act, which was Ratzinger's interpretation of uh, Ratzinger's 
interpretation as prefect of the CDF of Canon 915. He did not explain it. And the bishops came away saying, well, it's up to the pastoral judgment of each bishop. Now, here's what's really interesting. We would not have... The bishops should have been given, it seems clear, Ratzinger's guidance on how to apply Canon 915, Ratzinger's direction on how to apply Canon 915. But even if they had, it would always be... The application of Canon 915 would always be up to the judgment of each bishop because it is not the purview of the U.S. Bishops' Conference to set a binding national policy on that matter. So we would it would always be, in fact... You know, people say, well, then they left it up to each bishop. Well, it, it would always be up to each bishop because the bishops' conference isn't empowered to set one policy. But if the bishops had, in that context of that debate had the full thing, then they might have put out clarity on this is what the church says and what will happen in dioceses. Or they might have, this perhaps is um, being too optimistic about their ability to kind of organize and do things, but they might have made kind of a moral agreement between themselves that they would all observe the prescripts of the law as clarified by Ratzinger. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I asked you that. I, I was very self-consciously putting a nickel in you there because I, you know, I, I want people to understand that, you know, that when, when we when people say, why isn't there national policies? Like, well, who's supposed to create a national policy? And we talked last week about what a bishop's conference is and is not for, and it's mm-hmm. most definitely not for this because primarily the invocation of Canon 915 is not even between the bishop and a politician. It is between a pastor and a Catholic that this is about the the, the personal relationship. Um, between between the proper pastor of the person in question and and the person who's who's in this this state, and so it's not you know it, it, I would argue it's not appropriate for there to be a national policy. First or of all, even possible them, because the bishop yeah. because the, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. So because I just the bishops' to... conference isn't empowered to do that. Okay, yeah. we do need to move on because I have a hard stop in basically I have a hard stop in six minutes and uh, and we need to do two things first. Um, first of all, um, we had asked at the pillar at www.pillarcatholic.com for listeners to weigh in on canonical questions that they would like us to answer in our podcast. And, um, and you guys have responded overwhelmingly with lots and lots and lots of canonical questions. Many of them are complicated, and we're going to start carving out more time each week to answer them. But there's one question, and many of them are quite serious. Some of them are silly. Some of them are serious. But there's, I, I looked through, and I think there's only one question that we can answer very quickly. And, uh, and, it's, it's, and so I'm going to answer that one, and it's not a very serious one, but maybe you're curious. Um, uh, Mary writes, are there any canons concerning beards? Are there any canons concerning beards? Um, Ed, I know an answer to this. Do you? We're going to try and run through this in under a minute. Do you know any answer to that? Can, canons as in in the code. Right. I... No. 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 There are no canons in the universal code of canon law concerning beards. However, I am aware, for what it's worth, of at least one diocese in the United States which prohibits priests from growing beards. What? And that may that may sound silly. Um, but it is, in fact, a longstanding and ancient custom of the church in the West that diocesan priests, secular priests, do not grow beards, and priests who are members of religious orders do grow beards, for whatever reason. I don't know. I mean, whatever. I don't know what the reason is. But I am aware of one diocese in the United States in which it remains um, the binding customary norm that diocesan priests are not to grow beards. I, I suppose maybe if they had some sort of a health exception, which some people can have, they can get really very bad skin irritation if they shave, but uh, an exception might be made. But I am aware of one diocese in the United States in which the particular customary norms of the Diocese prohibit the growing of beards. So there's your answer. Hmm. Now, Ed, we have four minutes. What do you want to do with our four minutes? Uh, gosh, uh, I suppose we could play a game. Would you like to play a let's game? Let's do it. Yes. All right, All right. We have some yes or no. Uh, oh, yes this... or no. Yes or no is a game that we have played in other places, that people have played in other places and at other times. But it is not a game we have ever played on the Pillar podcast before. So, Ed, how do you play? Uh, I'm, I'm just going to read you a, a series of... Uh, of nouns, and I would like you to please respond simply yes or no. Oh, right. I thought the game we were playing was good, better, best, but we're not. We're playing yes or no. Oh, no. I haven't. I, I don't have greater or lesser. I only have yes or greater no. Greater or lesser, whatever up. it's called. Yes or no. So you're going to read me a list of things that I'm simply going to say yes or no. Yeah, we're going to call this round the Heart uh, Foundation. The Heart Foundation. Okay. No reason. Fair enough. No, no reason. I'm ready. Uh, Bret Hart. Yes. Brett the Hitman Hart. Brett the Hitman Hart, yes. Yes. Uh, you're wrong, but okay. No, um, yes. Owen Hart. More yes. Owen Hart, more yes than Brett Hart. Okay. Uh, you, you've strayed beyond the bounds of yes or no there, but I, I will allow it because you were making an important point. Um, more yes. The the board game Operation. No. Really? No. Oh, gosh. Okay. 
Next. Achy Breaky Heart. No. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, I don't know. Not enough information. I don't know anything about that. How can you not have enough information? What is it? Do they have, it's a band, right? They have songs? Tom Petty. Honestly, you're fa- you sometimes accuse Free me. Free Falling? I mean, Free that is, falling. I, I would argue, one of their better known but not best songs. She's so a good I'm, girl. Man. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, sure. Yeah, sure, sure. Less yes than Bret Hart. You're gonna get you're gonna get savaged on Twitter for not knowing who Tom Petty is, but okay. I don't know about that. I don't know about is it. I don't know about pop culture. I, I don't know. This Tom Petty is not pop culture. Tom Petty <laughs> was an American hero. God rest his soul, JD Flynn. Okay, for, oh from the he's from the seventies or something. Okay, I don't oh know what that is. God, all right. The Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels. <laughs> yes, and actually the best. The best incarnation of, I don't know about pop culture, but here I go. The best incarnation of Shawn Michaels, the Heartbreak Kid, was actually the Rockers, you know, the, the tag team. With Marty Jannetty. Marty Jannetty. Yeah, and then Shawn Michaels, uh, they broke up, and then Marty Jannetty had kind of a crummy career after that, but obviously Shawn Michaels had one heck of a career as, as the Heartbreak Kid. Shawn Michaels, uh, definitely one of my favorite wrestlers growing what, up. What, I mean, what a heel. What, I mean, that really the pinnacle of what it is to be a heel. Well, his heel turn was amazing, but I mean, he was... Uh... He was he was a face. He was in fact a baby face for you know much of for the part of his career I loved most. Like because I stopped really watching professional wrestling round about the the first the great first Iron Man match between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, where Shawn Michaels quite rightly whooped Bret Hart's. Was that I, I stopped watching I stopped watching professional wrestling around the time of the introduction of Monday Night Raw. Yeah, that was, was all sort of after that. And that's what I mean. Yeah, is after the yeah. after the first Iron Man match, it all started going downhill. It went into the Attitude yeah. Era and everything, and I sort yeah. of lost interest. But you know, that for me was the apex. Was the was the hour long Iron Man match between Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart? That was a yeah. perfect wrestling match, yeah. and Shawn Michaels won, Agreed. which was great. Um, also, you do, you can watch old wrestling. You can watch a lot of old wrestling matches on YouTube. Like I know from time to time, I watch I watch um, I watch Yokozuna gets body slammed on the deck of the Intrepid. Nice. Do you um, remember who did that? Yes. Wait, wait. On the body, on the what of the what? The Titanic? on the deck of the intrepid. Uh, the intrepid. Remember, it was a Fourth of July thing oh, where Yokozuna put down a I don't remember who that. I mean, Yokozuna body slammed. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I think Diesel body slammed him a couple of times too. That was always fun. Um, but yeah, so. Yeah, no. My go-to is always the iron, or is, is always the ladder matches between Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon, who was my favorite. Uh, anyway, cool. okay. So that, that's a that's that's a yes for the Heartbreak Head. Okay, Heartbreak Hotel. That's an Elvis song, is that right? I believe it's an Elvis film. In fact, no, I don't. Okay, um, Valentine's Day. Note, I'm saying Valentine's Day, not Saint Valentine's Day. Ah, uh, yes, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I like chocolate. <laughs> okay. Uh, fair enough. Um, the American Heart Association. I have no particular animus against them. I sure, I guess. Yes or no? It's uh. a simple question, JD. Yes or no? The American Heart Association. No. No. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure they're up to something. Um, Meatloaf's Immortal Ballad. I would do anything for love. But I won't do that. Yes. You know, this is an often misunderstood song. People always say, you know, well, what is it that he won't do? But they don't understand is that the refrain, which is, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that, comes at the end of a verse in which he explains what the that is. That there's like three oh. different that's in the course well, of the song. I'm going to look that up. And I would like our listeners to look it up as well. There's all kinds of things he won't do. And he keeps saying them and then saying, so I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And I was like, well, what dying you? for. No, what? What? No, stop Can't that. Can't tell me. It's not worth crying. You know it's true. Okay, anyway. Oh, wait. No, that's a different song, right? Oh, no, yeah, that's a song. Yeah. No. Oh, never mind. Meatloaf was in Fight Club. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Yeah. Okay, um, next. Okay. Uh, heart-shaped furniture. No. No. Okay. Horrible. Horrible. Um, heart of America Athletic Conference. I don't know what that is. So it's sure. a collegiate athletic conference. The Heart of America. I figured that. I figured that. Yeah, yeah it's it, it's an athletic conference. Hang on, I will tell you who's in it. Believe it or not, they don't actually have displayed on their own website the num uh, any particularly interesting teams. But I picked this one because I thought it was you know from your side of the world, so I thought you'd like it. Okay, I'll there's take it. Baker University, Benedictine oh, College, yeah. Central oh, Methodist. Oh sure, Benedictine College. Yeah, Benedictine College. Yes. I mean, no, no. Now that I know that, no, because I went to Steubenville. So I mean, no. Oh, hang on. There's others. Benedictine I mean, would like to be our rival. Uh, there's Clark University, Culver Stockton, Evangel University, Graceland University, Graceland, um, Mid American Nazarene University, Mount Listen, Mercy. I went to Steubenville, brother. 
when I say what's next, it means I'm ready to move on to the next yes or no question. All right, fair enough. Uh, Corad Core Lockwater, JD. Yes. All right. And finally, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Once upon a time, I was falling in love. Yes. Now I'm only falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yes. Wedding reception favorite. Yeah. Is that a Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker song? And we are definitely going to call it a day there, JD. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Ed. Uh, listen, if you listeners, thank you for listening to and subscribing to the Pillar Podcast. If you like what we do at um, www.catholicpillar.com and at the Pillar Podcast, please also um, subscribe to our newsletters, which you can sign up for free um, or pay for if you, like us, think that our work is worth paying for. The Pillar Podcast is a production of uh, Pillar Media, a Ed and JD production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my Pillar co-founder, uh, Ed Condon. And uh, this week we are, um, I suppose, uh, J.D. Petty and the uh, Ed Heartbreakers. So we'll talk to you. I, that was a terrible joke. That was awful. Yeah, it was. Okay. Right. Done. Say your prayers and take your vitamins, kids. Indeed. <laughs>